Welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things and baking things, um, historical and modern. And we normally like to start before our main topic by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? I think I'm going to finish the Godzilla cross-stits this week. Exciting. That's been going for how long? Since November. <laughs> I started yeah. it on Godzilla Day, which happens to also be my birthday. <laughs> um, so I know how long I've been working on it down to the day. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you should finish it on the next Godzilla Day. I mean, that would involve spending almost three months on doing one cloud. <laughs> but yeah, it's exciting, and I'm going to put it on my denim jacket when I'm done. That's very cool. Figure out how to edge it. But that's exciting, and I've been planning a Halloween soap. I've got a few different ideas. But also... Um, the fabric that I got for making a, a summer miniskirt with is too thick for my sewing machine. Oh, no. So when I finish the Godzilla, I'm going to have to sew that up before I start working again on the Gansey because I need to get it made before summer finishes. These are my three craft newses. There's, there's a bunch of different stuff. It's been a while since you made soap, has it? It has. Well, I I had a lot of soap. <laughs> That's true. At some point, I guess you must reach soap saturation. Yeah, I've decided what I'm going to do is make it seasonally. So, like, this one is going to be my soap for autumn. Because it takes, like, a month to cure. Mm-hmm. So if I make it late August, early September, that'll be my autumn soap. And obviously it's going to be some kind of Halloween-y thing. So I've I've ordered a couple of stamps to play with, including one that's like bats and stuff. Neat. I can't so it's probably going to be some it. sort of swirl with a bat stamp on it. And maybe some sort of spooky embed on top, I haven't decided. Definitely glitter. Yes. Always glitter. Maybe like a light dusting of silver glitter on top for stars for the bat to fly through. I don't know. I think silver would be good. I just like silver as a Mm -hmm. (laughs) colour. How about you? Um, So I just got back from my first reenactment weekend, which was great. I was at Battle of Evesham and it was really cool. And I, yeah, I, I got to go around being all medieval and uh, doing living history. And I I taught a child to spin and it was great. That's so cool. <laughs> when medieval um, are we talking? Because there's a, there's a lot of medieval. Uh, so the reenactment was Battle of Evesham, um, which is 13th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I've forgotten exactly when that happens let me check uh 1265 so yeah 
I guess, like mid medieval. Um, but yeah, it was cool. It, there was the largest group of mounted reenactors in the country at the time, which was pretty cool. There was a whole bunch of horses. I, I liked the horses a lot. Did you get to pet a horse? I did get to pet a horse. Nice. <laughs> um, but now it, I think this is the trouble. It's a hobby that has like multiple hobbies within it. And now I'm mm -hmm. looking at whether I can find some medieval wool combs so that I can do like a full um, wool working display. Um, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, but I looked it up and they're expensive, so. <laughs> Presumably they're not that hard to make. I have to imagine they're fairly straightforward. Um, They have to be, they have quite um large tines on them. So they have to be like forged, which I is see. a skill I don't have. Um, I haven't, well, I haven't I seen any. I like there was a yet there. <laughs> Yeah, I just haven't happened to have the chance to try any blacksmithing yet. But you know, if the opportunity <laughs> arose. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd, I've been mainly finishing my kit for that, which um which is now done. I have an outfit. Um but it was very warm and I only had the one outfit, which is a, a medium weight wool, so I was a bit a bit sweaty. Uh but it was it was still fun. Um, yeah, so since I've got back, um, I've just been fussing around, really. Um, I want to get back to some knitting, but again, it's a bit too warm, so. It really is. We'll see. But one thing I do need to do is make pesto, because we have a lot of basil. Yes, I love pesto. The basil is at least enjoying the weather, so I'm going to make, <laughs> like, two kinds of pesto, and it's going to be great. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that has reminded me of a food thing that we did. Oh? Uh, my parents have a gooseberry bush. And they gave us some gooseberries, which turned out to be half a kilo of gooseberries. That's quite a lot of gooseberries. Specifically half a kilo after I top and tailed them all. <laughs> wow. Because you have to do that with gooseberries because they've got very wooden like ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we made uh, about 750 milliliters of gooseberry jam. Nice. But we gave them some of the jam, yeah. which was was apparently very nice. Um, and I can confirm it's very nice. We have because we also still have <laughs> a lot of gooseberry jam in the house. <laughs> but then it's got get... a nice tartness to it. Like it's a lot of jam is very sweet. Yeah, yeah, I like because I don't really like gooseberries except in jam. I think for that reason. Um, yeah, gooseberries are very tart. Yeah, although I, I did I, make. I will just sit and eat gooseberries, but I am. <laughs> That's impressive. A menace. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I made a gooseberry curd once, which was delicious. Ooh. So, in and in a, and then made a Victoria sponge with it. So yeah, I would recommend. But yeah, that sounds great. You just reminded me, actually. I Very tried... summery. Yes. <laughs> it's great to have that in the winter as well, though. Just, like, the taste of summer. Mm. Um, it yeah, will just... be gone by then. <laughs> you just reminded me, though. My elderflower wine um, turned out pretty good. So nice. I'm pleased with that. It is now drinkable. 
your elderflower wine of uncertain strength yeah yes um <laughs> thank you um Liz sent me a um a alcohol not a thermometer a hydrometer <laughs> well every so, time you make something alcoholic you post on instagram like no idea how strong this is <laughs> that's part of the magic but it will be nice to know actually so thanks <laughs> okay shall we talk about a guy a specific guy or yeah do mind? <laughs> i do actually <laughs> let's fail um... the bechdel test <laughs> Actually, I guess we already feel it because I'm not a woman. I don't know if... I don't think the Bechdel test accounts for the existence of people who aren't men or women. It, it, it doesn't. Um, so there's only one woman in this podcast. Is <laughs> <laughs> highly reductive. Um. <laughs> You're the token woman. <laughs> so who, uh, who are we talking about? Yeah, let me tell you about my guy. Um, <laughs> this is one of our person and or book episodes. Um, so I had a little look on our master list of podcast topics to see what we haven't got around to yet, and Epicurus was one of them. Uh, so I am going to talk about Epicurus, um, who you might know from the terms Epicurean or Epicure meaning somebody who really enjoys their food. Um, but it turns out Epicurus doesn't actually have that much to do with food. And it's all a bit... <laughs> I know. It's all a bit of a misconception. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. So I'm going to explain why and what the difference between an Epicure and an Epicurean is. And then I will talk a little bit about a very famous epicure, um, but just just to have it related to food a little bit. Okay. <laughs> and not turn this into a philosophy podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, Epicurus was a what the founder of one of the most important schools of philosophy in the Hellenistic age. Um, in ancient Greece. And he was born in 341 BC on a Greek island um, that I believe was part of the state of Athens. Um, and he is now thought to be uh, a proponent of hedonism. Um, I think being an Epicurean has this connotation with like the pursuit of pleasure and pleasure as the highest thing in life um and he he yeah he sort of gets a really bad rep as this kind of amoral guy who was all about pleasure um and like didn't care about anything else and that's kind of what to, the word epicurean has connotations with today um, and that's why an epicure is somebody who really appreciates food, is, is one of the terms for a foodie, um, because um, the, the pleasures of eating was like one of the things, the hedonistic things um, that he was 
said to um to be about but that's actually not the case <laughs> um, been slandering him for 1700 years yeah they really have and i think it's kind of sad because his philosophy is actually very relevant to us today um i i really didn't know much about it before i looked into this but um yeah it's, it's really mischaracterized um for a start, he wasn't particularly into hedonism at all. Um, <laughs> no, um, he's actually... Uh, he, he does... His philosophy is about um, pleasure and pleasure as something that is good and something that we should strive for. Um, but within reason, like he says, you have to be... You have to choose your pleasures wisely so you pick the thing that's going to give you the most pleasure in the end rather than instant gratification. Okay. Um, it's sensible. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just being sensible. Yeah, and I mean, Epicurus himself um, actually grew up in relative obscurity um, and he wasn't born to a rich family. So he, you know, had this, this normal um, childhood. Uh, he he. So he he wasn't all about you know getting, spending his wealth around and having a good time. Um, he then went and studied with famous philosophers of the day. Um, and he's actually also known for his contribution to physics. Uh, he he sort of did a lot of thinking about the atom. Um, and okay. and uh, which yeah. <laughs> Which is pr pretty far away from just being like a no morals good time guy. Um, and then he went back to Athens and he started his own school, which was called The Garden. Um, like yeah, and uh, apparently it was this sort of place where it, it was kind of a commune. Like he advocated getting out of the rat race um, <laughs> and <laughs> withdrawing from like public life and just, you know, living together in this nice garden um, and enjoying life and having interesting conversations about philosophy with your friends, which just sounds lovely. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's bad about that? Um, but the thing is, in the context of his day, um, being a good citizen of Athens was all about public life and contributing to society um, and, you know, in politics or the military or, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that kind of thing. So, like, this guy going off to start your nice philosophy commune wasn't actually, like, that well regarded. And no one really knew what was going on in there. So I yeah, it kind of started up this apparently it started up this this gossip about him. Um that he was just sort of you know, doing having this wild hedonistic time. Um which persists to this day. Oh, I'm so sorry, Epicurus. I know. <laughs> I just uh I I really I'm a fan. I'm liking this Epicurus guy. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, his um he what he was trying to reach with his um school of Epicureanism was reaching the state of uh, ataxia, which is this state of mental like tranquility or like the the absence of pain, basically. Um, and that that was what it was all for to try and attain this state of the absence of pain. That's how you can achieve happiness. And according to him, the meaning of life is kind of t- to be happy, to attain happiness. Um, I really like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that doesn't mean the, necessarily like the absence of physical pain, because Epicurus himself um, suffered from chronic illness and is thought to have died of kidney stones, which sounds excruciating. Um, yeah. Uh, but um, he, yeah, but he, he kind of said that, well, you can still, you know, even if you're physically in pain, you can still strive to achieve this this sort of state of mental tranquility that will allow you to sort of endure it. Um, so, yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of more than it seems, I think, on the outside. And he um, he talked about a focus on kind of meeting your basic needs. So he wasn't about excess or overconsumption. Um, he recognised, you know, that here the that you need to take away that uh, the want the desire so you know you, you should meet that desire you should fill that fulfill that desire um in order to be happy um but then beyond that there's not much increase in happiness so like for example if you really like fancy some chocolate after dinner and then you go and have some chocolate and you feel good um then that's that's fulfilled that desire and like you're you're feeling satisfied but then if you go and eat loads more chocolate um it doesn't really increase the happiness and it might even cause you pain later cuz you feel sick later on so um yeah so like this? this is this is all making perfect sense to me. Yeah, pretty much. It's kind of like, yeah, you you have your basic needs met and you like choose your pleasures wisely and fulfill them. Um and then and then you try and just be chill. Um so it's, yeah, it sounds pretty nice. Um So yeah, there's there's a lot more to it than there is on the surface, I think. Um, and I mean, there were some people, uh, a lot of people in the ancient world, um, really liked the idea of this and he did, you know, he was, his school of philosophy was one of the most important ones, um, in the Hellenistic age. Um, as far as I know, it was sort of opposed to the school of Stoicism, um, which I don't know a lot about, um, but I think is more about kind of anticipating, um, like negative things and and being prepared for them. Um, yes, the Stoics are the like depression philosophers. Okay, <laughs> I can see that why that would be a bit of a bit of a clash. Um, I read a little bit from his Principal Doctrines. Um, which have survived. 
So yeah, there we go. De okay, so number two, death is nothing to us for the body when it has been resolved into its elements has no feeling and that which has no feeling is nothing to us. So he was kind of recognising that one of the biggest barriers to humans being happy is that we are so worried about death and he was just kind of like, well, you know, I'm not going to be worried about it when I'm dead, so why worry about it now? Uh, Love that. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like, well, what can I do about it, you know? Uh, number five, it is impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely and well and justly. And it is impossible to live wisely and well and justly without living pleasantly. Wherever any one of these is lacking, when, for instance, the person is not able to live wisely, though he lives well and justly, it's impossible for him to live a pleasant life. Um, so, yeah, if, if he's having a good time, but not doing it wisely, <laughs> then... Then he's got problems. Yep. Ah, um... No pleasure in itself is evil, but the things which produce certain pleasures entail annoyances many times greater than the pleasures themselves. So how did he end up being the gorgeous-self guy? Um, yeah, I, th I think it was kind of just this reputation for... Because he was an advocate of pleasure. Um, and I, I think a lot of a lot of schools of thought are about denying yourself pleasure in some way. Um, I, th I think that kind of contributed to the the view of this guy and the fact that he kind of ran this commune and people thought it was a bit weird. Mm -hmm. um, he just sort of became associated with um, with this hedonistic lifestyle and. Um, food is the one that seems to have come out of that like it it's thought to have been um that he was just all about pleasure and about you know eating loads of nice food um and his name became a byword for that so that's so sad um, he would have yeah that. <laughs> yeah um but then on the other hand i suppose nowadays I wouldn't say an epicure implies a person who, like, is a glutton or... Um... That is true. Like, I think if I hear the word, I think of, like, a rich person who spends all their money on, like, rare ingredients in fancy restaurants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I would, like, I would, I would imagine somebody who really appreciates food. Um which is not a negative connotation necessarily, so mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you know, he's all about enjoying yourself, but thinking about really what's likely to give you the the most tranquility in the end and picking that option. Um and he yeah, it does get characterized sometimes as being selfish and only thinking about your own pleasure. Um, but again, because it's all about how much pleasure are you going to get in the end? And like, it's reasonable to do something that will inconvenience you in order to say, do a favor to your friend. So maybe that's um, 
giving you more pain in the short term, but then you'll get more pleasure later on for be for having helped your friend. So it's mm. yeah, it's it does encourage thinking about that. Um so that's that's the whole where the word epicure came from. And it actually doesn't have a lot to do with food. Um, although there is one uh, quote from Epicurus um, that I found that was food related, uh, which is that to eat and drink without a friend is to devour like the lion and the wolf. You know what? I can get behind this one as well, because when I'm eating alone, I just kind of eat it without thinking. But if, yeah. I'm, if I'm like sharing a meal, you, like, you sit and you chat and you talk about the food and you talk about other things and you experience it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think I, his, he thought that um, discussing things with friends was like the highest thing that will make you happy. And um, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's true. Because, like, I mean, I still like tasty food when I'm alone. But it's nicer if you can share it with some friends. Especially yeah. if you cooked the food and then your friends are eating it and they like it. And it makes mm. you feel good. Yeah. Um, so I thought, since this episode so far doesn't have that much to do with food, and this is a food history and domestic history podcast. Um, I will go on to talk about maybe uh, one or two famous epicures throughout history. Um, okay. So a, a big one is um, the Roman Epicius. Um, but we... He's also on our list, isn't he? Yes, he's also on our list. So <laughs> we will talk more about Epicius later. Um, but yeah, very, very well-known epicure of the ancient world. Uh, and then this one is new to me. Um, I recently discovered the writings of Jean Anthelme Brillat Savaron, which is a great name. I'm going to uh, take a wild stab and say French. Yes. Um, one of the most influential food writers uh, of the 19th century. And he is the author of a book published in 1825 called The Physiology of Taste, which had a massive impact on French food um, and continues to this day to have an impact on food. So I'm going to earmark that one for a future book episode, because I think there's enough on that book itself to do a whole episode. Mm -hmm. Um but I am going to read a little bit of some of his essays uh, because he wrote a lot about food. Um, he wasn't a chef. He was a lawyer and politician. He just had a lot of thoughts. He just had a lot of feelings <laughs> about food. Um, so, yeah, he, he was an epicure. Um, and he wrote a lot on the subject. And he was famously very witty. So uh, this is from his essay on gourmandism. So a gourmand is another word for a foodie or an epicure, someone who really appreciates food. Uh, and so uh, in his definition, in fact, gourmandism is an impassioned, reasoned and habitual preference for everything which gratifies the organ of taste. 
Okay, so it's a lot more the kind of hedonistic side of stuff than um, Epicurus. I suppose, but then he does go on to say gourmandism is the enemy of excess, indigestion, and drunkenness. Um, and deserves nothing but praise and encouragement. <laughs> From the moral point of view, it shows implicit obedience to the commands of the Creator, who, when he ordered us to eat in order to live, gave us the inducement of appetite, the encouragement of savour, and the reward of pleasure. <laughs> Amazing. So there you go. God himself commanded us to enjoy food. <laughs> um, there's a paragraph called Advantages of Gourmandism. And you might expect that to be followed by perhaps some of the disadvantages, but the next paragraph is in fact titled More Advantages. Yes. <laughs> uh, from the point of view of political economy, gourmandism is the common bond which unites the nations of the world through the reciprocal exchange of objects serving for daily consumption. So, it's vital to trade. I mean, um, not wrong. No, not at all. Uh, there you go. And lastly, it is gourmandism which forms the livelihood of the industrious throng of cooks, confectioners, bakers, and others of all descriptions concerned with the preparation of food. Who, in their turn, employ other workers of every kind for their needs, thus giving rise at all times to a circulation of funds incalculable in respect to mobility and magnitude by even the most expert brains. <sighs> I like this a lot. <laughs> um, what I particularly like is uh, this part titled Portrait of a Pretty Gourmand, um, in which he talks about gourmandism uh, for women. Uh, gourmandism is by no means unbecoming in women. It suits the delicacy of their organs and compensates in some degree for the pleasures they must forego and the ills to which nature seems to have condemned them. The delicacy of their organs. <laughs> I can confirm I have very dainty and delicate organs. Uh, there is no more charming sight than a pretty gourmand in action. Her napkin is daintily tucked in, one hand rests on the table, the other conveys to her mouth elegantly cut morsels. Her eyes are bright, her lips glistening, and all her movements full of grace, and she does not lack that touch of coquetry which women show in everything they do. With such advantages she is irresistible, and even Cato the censor could not look at her unmoved. Eating floatily. Apparently this guy just really... Like all women do. This guy was just horny. He was just like very horny for food and apparently food-related activities. I mean, you um, do you, I guess. Yeah, I guess. He just really likes to watch women eat, apparently. Um. Oh, but here a bitter memory comes to mind. Oh, no. One day, being placed next to pretty Madame M at table, I was inwardly rejoicing at my good fortune when she suddenly turned to me and said, Your health! I promptly began a neat reply, but I never finished. For the coquette turned towards her other neighbour and asked him to drink with her. They touched glasses, and that left a wound in my heart which many years have failed to heal. 
Maybe you should have just toasted with her instead of coming up with some weird response. <laughs> this is on you, my dude. Oh my I'm goodness. I'm this guy now. <laughs> yeah, he was, I just, oh, the way this man writes is, is just, it's something else. Um, <laughs> it's very funny. He has a lot of witticisms, but yeah, it's also some interesting points of view. Oh. <laughs> you started off so well. Uh, there is also the paragraph, Influence of Gourmandism on Conjugal Happiness. Oh dear. <laughs> Finally, Gourmandism, when it's shared has the most marked influence on the happiness which may be found in the married state. Two married gourmands have a pleasant opportunity to meet at least once a day, but even those who sleep apart eat at the same table. They have a subject of conversation which never goes stale, but they talk not only about what they are eating, but also what they have eaten, what they are about to eat, what they have observed at other houses, fashionable dishes, new culinary inventions, etc, etc, and such chit-chat is full of charm. Which I guess is this I agree with again. It's just it's just that <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> it's one thing to base a whole relationship on, I suppose. I mean, given when he was writing, there's definitely worse things that people could have been basing relationships on. Yeah, like, true. The same grandmother. You know, if you want to connect to your spouse who you married for their money, then food is a good way to do it. Uh, it just this essay. I mean, it's something everyone has to interact with. <laughs> True. Oh, this essay is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, I note with pride that coquetry and gourmandism, those two great modifications which extreme sociability have made to our most pressing needs, are both of French origin. There we go. It's not French just because it's got a French name. <laughs> well, according to Brillat Savaron, it is uh, distinctly French. Coquetry is inherent to all women, but also <laughs> French. Does that mean all women are French? All women are French. <laughs> Bonjour, <laughs> mon ami. Oh no, I don't speak French. <laughs> Interesting uh, chap. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um although his book, The Physiology of Taste, is is still in print. Um you can still get one. So it certainly stood the test of time. So I yeah, I'm I'm very tempted actually to get a copy and see what's uh, see what's going on in it because I have to admit, I'd like to see more of this guy's writing. <laughs> I mean, it would be helpful if we're going to do an episode on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it would make for a good um, episode. I think it'd be quite interesting. Um, so there you go. And um, one of the other episodes we've done, actually, uh, on Alexandre Dumas, 
that would be interesting if you want to know about another famous epicure um because he wrote quite a bit about it um some of which was patently untrue but yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting uh but enthusiastic nonetheless definitely um, enthusiastic <laughs> yes um so please do um if you if you know of a historical person who would come under the definition of an epicure um tweet at us and let us know about them and we might do an episode on them in the future is is this a transition into social media i think so <laughs> yeah that's that twitter is bread and thread uh if you prefer to tumble at us um <laughs> That's also Bread and Thread. Um, both of those, you can find hints to upcoming episodes, um, Work in Progress Wednesdays, retweeting, reblogging, stuff that we find interesting, all, all that good jazz. Uh, yep. Uh, and on that note of the teasers, um, I am just sending you the image of the teaser for this episode. Um, which I'm just going to explain quickly. It is a cartoon from the Napoleonic War era uh, that is well, a caricature that is titled The Plum Pudding in Danger or State Epicures Taking un Petit Super. Um, and it is a satire ca a cartoon of um, William Pitt the Younger and Napoleon, Emperor of France, carving up uh, the world between them on a plate um, in the form of a plum pudding. So Amazing. there you go. One of the more famous uh, images titled with Epicure. Um, that is, that is a, like, that's an obscure clue even for me. Oh yeah, I thought it might be fun for, <laughs> <laughs> for it might catch a few people out. This episode is also going up in like, three days so i don't know if a clue is going to be posted for this one well, I'll, um, I'll pop it up now and uh there we go the clues in the name but yeah we also have a email if you want to request an episode or just say hi tell us something interesting um we had one we had one person email asking about berry market because i'd mentioned it on the podcast that was cool great um, that is breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a Patreon, which is Bread and Thread, where you can find monthly recipes, a Discord server where we chat about our projects and things to do with the episode. Um, so, uh, oh, and if you um, support us at one of the specific tiers, we will make an episode just for you about anything you want us to. Uh, we have a YouTube, which is also Bread and Thread, where we have uh, audio, uh, YouTube video <laughs> versions so of our audio broken. episodes, because <laughs> 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 uh, some people prefer it that way, and we're hoping to have a few um, sort of interesting videos out there uh, soon. Uh, do we have anything else? I think that's everything. I think that's it. So I hope you enjoyed... Um, 
this little journey into Epicurus and why he's actually not that relevant to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then also someone who is. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>